Well, good morning. It is good to be with you all. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are a kid and you are ready to get dismissed for Kids Church, now is the time for you to do that. Thanks for all the frantic waves from parents. I appreciate that, right? <laughs> Uh, yes. So, uh, good morning. It is good to be with you. If you are new or visiting, I want to say especially welcome to you. If there's anything that we can do to uh, serve you or help you get connected to the community here at River City, we really genuinely would love to do that. And so, come find me or Aaron or anybody else you've seen up front. We would love to get to know you more. Uh, looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. Uh, we, uh, this morning and this fall, we're actually, uh, we're on the front end of a study uh, in Exodus chapter 20, taking a look at the Ten Commandments. And, and that might seem a little bit odd to spend a lot of time taking a look at the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, what do we do with that? But, but we began our study a few weeks ago by framing the Ten Commandments in the context of one of the most central storylines of the Bible. And that is that God is making a people for himself. From beginning to the end, the story of the Bible is that God is making a people for himself, a people, as Ephesians 1 tells us, who will be for the praise of his glory. You see, that's where the story began in Genesis with the creation of humanity as God's image-bearing representatives and the commission for humanity to multiply and to, and to spread the earth, to fill the earth with God's image-bearing representatives. And it's where the story ends in Revelation as God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered around the throne in heaven, worshiping him and praising him and glorifying him. You see, and throughout the storyline of the Bible, the primary way that God's people uh, bear his image, the primary way in which we glorify God, in which we worship him, is by obeying his commands. You see, by, confirming, uh, by obeying his commands, by confirming that their lives, by, co- by conforming our lives to his word and his ways. You see, because the truth is, is that God's commands, they don't just show us what God wants. They show us what he is like. God's commands, they don't just show us what he wants. They show us what he's like. You see, the Ten Commandments, they're not a legalistic list of God's favorite rules. They're, they're not an arbitrary list that he was just like, ah, I'm kind of feeling these ones are the big ones today when he made them. Um, no, instead, God's commands are a revelation of his very being. They reveal his character and his nature. They show us what he is like. You see, the Ten Commandments, they they don't begin with what or why or how. The Ten Commandments, they begin with who. Chapter 20, verse 2 begins this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of slavery in the land of Egypt. You see, before God tells Israelites, before God tells his people to do anything, he tells them who he is, who they are, and what he has already done. You see, that's the stage the Ten Commandments are set on. You see, the Ten Commandments at the heart of them, it's not a list of rules to follow, but rather it's a description of what it looks like for the people of God. God's rescued and redeemed image-bearing people it's a description of what it looks like for us to glorify him. The Ten Commandments, they're not, they're not instructions about how to get out of Egypt. They're not instructions about how to save yourself, how to, how to free yourself. You see, they are a gracious guide that God shows his people, a freed people, what it looks like to live in the freedom that God has bought for them already. See, Deuteronomy 32, 47 describes the 
God's commands this way. It says they are for your life. Psalm 19 says that they refresh the soul, that they give joy to the heart, that in keeping them there is great reward. You see, the God's commands, they're not a burdensome checklist of do's and don'ts. You kind of just need to muscle your way through there. And they're not chains that keep you in bondage from experiencing life to the full. Instead, God's commands are an invitation to a life of incredible freedom and of great joy and full of blessing. And it's a command, it's an invitation that God extends to his people. See, what we've seen so far in the first three commands is that 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 life of freedom and joy and blessing that God extends to his, his people, that's outlined for them in his commands, it begins, it has everything to do with worshiping God. You see, the first command focuses on worshiping the right God. It calls us to worship the the one true God supremely and exclusively. And the second command we saw focuses on worshiping the right God in the right way. We're, We're not to fashion our own images of God in order to worship him. We're to worship him as he has revealed himself to be, not as we want him to be. And that leads us to our study this morning in the third command as we take a look in, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And like the first two commands, the third command has everything to do with worshiping God. This time it focuses on our worship or our use of God's name. More precisely, it focuses on the misuse of God's name, or as the old King James says, it using God's name or taking God's name in vain. And I think if we're honest, we come to the third command and we kind of feel like we can let our guard down a little bit, like... You know, it feels more like a good reminder than, than like this foundational command for life. And I, and I think that the reality is, is that that's be, the reason why we think that is because we have a pretty superficial understanding of what this command is really all about. We have a pretty superficial understanding of what this command is really about. We think that the third command, uh, the command not to take God's name in vain, it, it's just kind of like, oh, just watch out what you say, you know, be careful with your OMGs, and, you know, it's like, you know, you'll be fine, right? It's, everything's going to be okay. It's just a just good reminder, right? But what I want to show you this morning is, is that this command is so much bigger than that. It's so much more than just about being about what we say. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, the greatest challenge to the third command isn't using God's name as a byword. It's our all-too-present eagerness to empty his name of its meaning by representing his name in a manner that is inconsistent with who he really is. You see, like the first two commands, the third command has everything to do with worshiping God. It has everything to do with seeing him for the God who he really is and living and speaking in response to the reality of him. And so my prayer this week has been that God might graciously help open our eyes to the, to the reality and, and to the real significance of the third command and that in understanding it more fully, we might see how it is meant to shape our lives and the, and the way that we speak about God, but more than that, the way that we live for him and unto him. And so with that in mind, let's pray. And we'll dive into our study this morning. King Jesus, we come before you. We are so grateful for you and for your word. God, and we just say, uh, as we do every week, we really need you. God, we come before you. We do not have what we need to understand your word rightly, to teach your word rightly, to respond to it rightly. God, we don't have what we need outside of you. And so, God, we ask graciously that you might empower me to speak uh, with power, to speak truthfully about your word. God, that you might empower us to respond and to receive it rightly. God, we come dependent on you. And so we are grateful that by your word, you, you use it to shape us and to mold us so that we, make mu- that we might make much of you and that we might glorify you. And so we ask towards that end, King Jesus, that you would shape us by your word this morning. We need you too. 
to come in your good name. Amen. All right, well, we are in Exodus chapter 20 this morning, verse 7, short and sweet. Verse 7 speaks this way. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So, as we study the Ten Commandments every week, there's four questions that we want to think through, four questions we want to structure our time in studying this word about. And the first is this, what is God commanding? What is he instructing his people to believe or do? And, and how does the New Testament expound this command, showing us the true scope uh, of the command? Second question we always want to ask, right? The command, what does it reveal about God? Remember we said the commands don't just tell us what God wants, they tell us what he's like. And so we want to ask that. What is this command showing us about God? Third, we, we realize that the commands reveal something about God, but they also reveal something about us. In fact, each command, it confronts us. It shows us how we are out of line with God's character and his will, and it confronts us. It shows us something outside of us that is, that is at odds with God. And lastly, each week, we realize the Ten Commandments, they can't save us. They, they can't change us, but the gospel can. And so we want to ask every week, how does the person and the work of Jesus, how does the gospel transform our hearts and our lives so that we can actually obey God's command, so that we can actually pursue it and follow it? And so, so instruction, revelation, confrontation, and transformation, that's our roadmap as we study this morning. So we begin. So what, what is God instructing us to do or not to do in this command? What, what is the command not to misuse the name of the Lord your God, or as the old King James says it, right, not to take God's name in vain? What is that command all about? Well, that word translated as misuse or, or vain, it literally means to use or to treat something as, emp- as empty, as worthless, or as trivial. See, on the surface, the, the third commandment, it, it's prohibiting us from misusing God's name by speaking about him carelessly or flippantly or thoughtlessly as if he doesn't exist or if he doesn't really matter. It would certainly include using God or Jesus Christ as, as curse words or swear words, right? Philip Reich in one commentator writes it this way, to treat God's name like something worthless, to treat something as holy, as sacred, as as common and secular is profanity in the truest sense of the word. Growing up, my, I don't know about you, but growing up, my parents were really intentional about this with us. They were, they were really honest about this. I remember we were definitely never allowed to say God as, as kind of like a remark or a response, and that included the abbreviations of OMG, and we couldn't even say G's because that was short for Jesus. And, and while we might draw the line differently in, in what slang you are okay with, you see, in, in hindsight, what I realized is what my parents were taking seriously was valuing God's name. What they were taking seriously is the concern for God's name. And while we might, we might approach it a little bit differently, or you might approach it a little bit differently, I think one thing I could never hold them, you know, I can't fault them for, is being intentional about caring about the honor of God's name. You see, using God's name carelessly or thoughtlessly or flippantly, it includes more than just using his name as a curse word, though. You see, we use God's name carelessly when we just say stuff like, you know, I just, I swear to God, it's true, right? As if it means nothing to swear by a name that cannot lie and whose word can never, ever be broken. Or sometimes when people are praying, right, they just say God or Jesus. It's like every fourth word in their prayer. It's like the um filler, Right? You know, and I, what I don't want to hear you, what, do, what I don't want you to hear me saying is that we should never use God's name or Jesus' name when, when we pray. In fact, the Bible specifically tells us we are to pray in Jesus' name. But, but, if, but if Jesus or God, if his name is just the kind of the filler between all the other words that we're praying, I think we might need to rethink how we're using his name. 
Or what about all the times when we just sing worship songs, but we're actually just thinking about something else entirely? Our brain is thinking about lunch or where we're going or what's happening with our kids. And, and our worship, it can, be, it can be casual, it can be careless, it can be insincere, and, and in so doing, we dishonor God's name. And I don't say that to confront you. I don't say that to shame you. I don't say that to like just kind of poke at you. I say it to say that sometimes it's okay not to sing. Sometimes it's okay not to sing. Now, if you never sing when you join God's people in worship, that's a different problem, right? But sometimes I even find myself, as I join us here on Sunday mornings, sometimes I just realize I just need to stand. Or even sometimes I just need to sit. I realize that my heart is not in the things that I am approaching, that my mind is off on something else. And what I don't want to do is just go through the motions, singing about God's name and his glory and his character, and just having it be overflow out of my mouth, but not something coming from my heart. And so I have to say this morning, it's, sometimes it might be okay for you just not to sing on a Sunday or for a while just to pray and talk with God and just be like, God, I, I sh- I'm honest with you. I'm thinking about something else, but I want to think about you. You see, uh, I think uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet, I think he says it best. My words fly up, my thoughts remain below, words without thoughts never to heaven go. You see, the invitation of Prestos we worship is not just to speak words, but it's to proclaim the goodness about God honestly and truly. And so we're not to use God's name carelessly or thoughtlessly or flippantly, but the command not to misuse God's name is about so much more than just that. You see, we're not to misuse God's name. We misuse it when we empty it of its meaning, when we use it in a manner that is inconsistent with who God really is, when we use it in a way that misrepresents him. You see, one of the ways that we do is when we associate God with things that are false. This would include things like lying under oath or, you see, perjury, whether at, on the stand or at at home, right? It's a direct violation of the third command. Leviticus 19 says, don't swear falsely by God's name and so profane the name of God. See, God's saying is don't associate me with things that are false. Don't use my name to affirm things that are false. That is the opposite of who I am. You see, Additionally, in the third commandment in the Old Testament, it was often applied to, applied to false prophets, people that said they spoke for God, but really didn't actually speak for him. You still see this today all the time with false teachers who claim to speak for God, televangelists and prosperity gospel preachers, right? God will give you X, Y, or Z if you'll just give me X, Y, or Z, right? Oh, X, Y, or Z sin, it's not a problem anymore. The Bible's just outdated. It's just old. We got that one wrong. Things have been updated, You see, what false prophets and false teachers are doing is using God's name to advance their own agendas. And they aren't the only ones who do that. You see, people, we often try to boost our own credibility by claiming that God is on our side. His name has been used to endorse everything from the crusades to the slave trade, from political parties to social causes, and the results are almost universally disastrous. Philip Reich, in one commentator, he just so insightfully writes, he says, sometimes we use God to endorse our political view so that we become, he becomes sort of a party mascot. Sometimes we use him to prop up our position so that other people will have to do what we say. Sometimes we fix his stamp of approval to our ministry or to our plans for the church, but whenever we confuse what we want with what God wants, we take his name in vain. Whenever we confuse what we want with what God wants, we take his name in vain. You see, in a foolish way, often inadvertently, sometimes we do this when we say stuff like, 
well, God told me to, right? Or, or God told me to tell you X, Y, or Z. And we often do that to encourage people or, or to come alongside them and not trying, to, uh, not trying to usurp God's authority, but I think that we need to be very careful when we attach God's name to our own words. You see, but ultimately, we misuse God's name not with our words, not by just speaking of him carelessly or flippantly, not by misrepresenting him with what we say, but we misrepresent him, we misuse his name with our lives and with our actions. You see, in the book of Amos, chapter 2, God tells his people that the way that they're treating the poor and the oppressed, the way that they are acting sexually is profaning his name. The author of Proverbs in chapter 30 writes that he prays that God would provide for him and keep him from stealing because if he stole something, it would profane or it would dishonor God's name. The New Testament writer Peter, he tells Christians in chapter 4, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. The Apostle Paul sums up the third commandment best when he writes, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, God's intention for his people has been that they would be a people set apart for the praise of his glory. They'd be a people set apart for his name, that their lives were meant to image him, to reflect him, to, to reveal his character and his nature to the world. And they often didn't, and neither do ours. You see, you see, to identify with him, to call yourself a Christian, but to live as though God's name doesn't really matter, to, to live as though he doesn't really exist, as though his character is not a reflection, as though your character is not a reflection of him, it's the truest form of misusing his name. One pastor writes it this way, if you are misrepresenting God with blatant sin in your life, that's taking his name in vain. By living as one who is called a Christ follower, but in actuality lives like the world, you are putting on Christ's name, but you are doing it in vain. You are misrepresenting the character of God. You see, me, we misuse God's name. We minimize him. We misrepresent him when we superficially define this command as just being about words. You see, God wants hearts and lives that are given to him that are submitted to him, that are surrendered to him, that reflect him. That's what his call is for his people. And at this point, if not sooner, that we need to ask the question, why does God care so much about his name? Why does God care so much about the misuse of his name? I think it's easy for us to read this command and think, it's just a name, right? It's just a name. It's, why is it such a big deal? Why is it so important? You see, and I think we think that because for us, a name is just a label. It's just a descriptor, right? It's something that differentiates you from somebody else, right? But for a Jew, a name was so much more than merely an identifying label. You see, a name was inseparable from a person. It expressed their inward identity. God, in fact, what he does is he renames people sometimes, and he does that to give a more accurate description of who they are. We see most example, for an example, in light of God's covenant that he makes with Abram a covenant to make him the earthly father of a great nation, a covenant to make a fatherless, barren father, a father of no one, into a great father of many nations. He changes his name to Abraham. And Abraham, it means father of a multitude. You see, that wasn't true of Abraham, but God made it true. He changed his name because it was going to become true of him. 
You see, for a Jew, a name was tied to your character, to your, rep- your reputation, to your very personhood. You see, that's why God cares so much about his name. Because his name is a representation of his identity. It is a reflection of the essence of who he is. His, his character and his reputation, they are tied intrinsically to his name. See, it's impossible to disconnect God from his name. That's why you have verses throughout the Bible like Psalm 113. says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Isaiah 24 says, give glory to the name of the Lord. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, you cannot separate God's name from his person. You see, God revealed his personal name in the story of Moses in, in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. We saw God comes to Moses to, and he tells Moses to go liberate his people from slavery in Egypt. And Moses asks God, what do I call you? What do, what do I tell the people who, about who sent me? And God tells him, he responds, tell them that Yahweh has sent you. You see that word Lord, L-O-R-D, whenever you read that in your Bible, it's all capitalized. That is the, that's showing you that that word, the personal name for God, is what's being translated there. You see God's name, Yahweh, it means I am who I am. It means I will be who I will be. His name tells us about who he is. And in naming himself Yahweh, the I am, the one who is, the one who is who he is and who will be who he will be, we see that God's existence, it doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. He simply is. He is utterly sovereign. He is entirely self-existing. He is the originator and the author of all life. He is the one who causes everything to be. You see, we don't choose a name for God. God chooses his own name and he reveals it to us. He tells us what he wants to be called. You see, we don't have the right to rename him and we do not have the right to misuse his name either. Leviticus 24, 16, we read, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. You see, and although this is a civil law for the nation of Israel that doesn't directly apply to us anymore, what we see is the severity, the sincerity in which God takes his name. It is a big deal to him. In Acts 19, we read about the seven sons of Sceva who misused Jesus' name, trying to employ it to perform magic tricks for their own personal advantage. And what we see is that God allowed them to get the severe beating that they deserved. In verse 17 of Acts 19, it tells us, And when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. See, misusing God's name, it communicates something false about who he is. It communicates something incorrect. It communicates something untrue about his nature and his character. You see, and so to misuse God's name is a direct attack on his honor and his glory. And as the sovereign king of all things, he will not stand for it. You see, rightly, justly, he defends the honor of his name. You see, the second half of verse 7, it reads this way, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. 
See that phrase, the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless. It means that God won't acquit. He won't, he won't leave unpunished anyone who misuses his name. One commentator describes it like this. He, see, he says, think of God's name as a trademarked property. God has graciously licensed the use of his name to anyone who will use it according to his written instructions. It needs to be understood, however, that God's name has not been released into the public domain. God retains legal control over his name, and he threatens serious penalties against the the unauthorized misuse of his supremely valuable property. All trademark violations will be prosecuted to the full limits of the law, and the prosecutor, the judge, and the jury, the enforcer is God himself. You see, God's name is his property. It reveals his person. It has everything to do with his identity and his his reputation. And so the great king of all will not have his name sullied by anyone or anything. See, God is big into his name. He is righteously filled with zeal for it. And he won't allow it to be taken in vain. He won't allow it to be misused, to misrepresent him. You see, and that leads us to how this command confronts us. You see, the reality is is that we break this command all the time. You see, we empty God's name of of its meaning all the time by using it carelessly or flippantly or thoughtlessly. We empty his name of its meaning by using his name for our own agendas, attaching him, his name, to our purposes instead of using it to advance his own. We, We speak about him with our lips, but we lie about him with our lives. You see, we look at our lives, look at look at the things that are go on in your heart, look at the you look at your temper, the way you treat others, look at the addictions that we have, the things that our lives reveal that are out of line with God's character. You see, all of us, we stand utterly condemned for dishonoring God's name. We are all humbled and brought to our knees. And instead, what we try to do is we try to get out from under the weight of that by superficially defining this command as just being about about taking God's name as a curse word. And so we just say, well, stop saying OMG. We'll stop saying God. We'll stop saying Jesus Christ as an expletive. And and what we're doing when we're trying to just cut that out of our lives, it's like we're like the morbidly fat guy who's stuffing his face and trying to drink a diet coke you see the diet coke it's it's not hurting something but it's not fixing the problem it's not solving what's really going on you see and we look foolish like that when we do this when we superficially define this command as just being about something we say but we miss that has everything to do with what's going on in our hearts you see but our guilt under the third commandment it goes far much farther than that you see, for us, it's not, that we, it's not that our guilt under this command is limited to just the way that we use God's name wrongly. No, the third command, like the rest of them, must be interpreted wholly. You see, what that means is that the, the prohibitions, the commands with negative connotations, they also include positive actions. You see, furthermore, Jesus and the New Testament, they reveal the true breadth and the depth of these commands. You see, the first commandment doesn't just tell us not to have any other gods before gods. As Jesus says, it tells us to love God with everything that we have. It's the negative and the positive. Likewise, Here in the third command, we're commanded never to misuse God's name. And Jesus shows us in Matthew 6 that it's not just about misusing God's name, but it's that we are called to hollow God's name. We are called to honor it. We are called to glorify it rightly. We're commanded to praise his name rightly, to honor his name rightly, to glorify his name rightly, to cherish his name rightly, to represent it rightly, to exalt his name rightly. And the truth is we don't. We don't. 
We don't use his name simply wrongly. We fail to use it rightly. We have failed to hollow God's name. We have failed to set it apart, to magnify it, to give his name the credit that it is due. You see, in every one of us, every one of us, we stand utterly condemned, utterly guilty before God, before Yahweh, the great I am. You see, and as the second half of verse 7 read, the Lord won't hold anyone guiltless who has misused his name. You see, but it's here, under the right and true weight of our own sin, under the right and true weight of God's just judgment against our own sin, against his righteous defense of the honor of his name, that the gospel can be the transformingly good news it was meant to be. You see, it's only here. You see, there's no good news if there's... The, bad, the good news is not good unless there's bad news. See, the bad news is that even if we could stop misusing God's name entirely, we would still be not able to use it rightly. You see, we could not honor his name as it should be. You see, oh, but Jesus did. He honored God's name in word and in deed. He completely did it entirely, fully. As Trevin Wax right, Jesus hallowed God's name. He makes it holy. He shows us what God is like. We who are God's people are supposed to show the world what he is like, but we have failed. And Jesus comes to this world and he succeeds. He is the perfect representation of God. You see what Jesus does? He enables us not just to stop misusing God's name, but he empowers us to use it rightly, to hallow his name. And he did this by by living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. You see, on the cross, what Jesus did is he stood in our place. He received God's just punishment that we deserve for misusing his name and dishonoring his name. You see, and on the cross, what Jesus did is Colossians chapter 6 says, he washed us, he sanctified us, and he justified us. All that happens in the name of Jesus. You see, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. He washes us. He makes us clean totally, purely. You see, Jesus, he justifies us. He makes us right with God so that we might come before him and speak his name in a way that honors him and pleases him. But more than that, he he makes us clean so that we might bear his name as his adopted family, that we might do it rightly. Jesus sanctifies us. He fixes our broken mirrors. So with our words and our lives, we might actually live to the praise of his glory. He gives us new hearts and new desires, a new passion to love for him and pursue him and live for him instead of ourselves, instead of our own name, instead of our own glory. You see, it's faith in Jesus' name. The name, as Philippians 2 tells us, that is above every other name. It's faith in who he is and all that he has done on behalf. It leaves you not just forgiven, but it leaves you empowered to obey in a way you could never have done before. You see, Jesus empowers us to be the people of God, set apart for the glory of God, a people who not only don't dishonor God's name, but who live for the praise of his glory, doing everything to honor his name. You see, obeying the third commandment has everything to do. It is inseparable. It is undetachable from the name of Jesus. 
The way you obey God's command to not misuse his name. The way we obey his command to hollow it. It has everything to do with the person and the work of Jesus. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One commentator writes it this way. He says, We obey the third command by living as Christians, by speaking and doing everything according to the family name. For when we do it, all of that what we do, and do it in Christ, for Christ, and through Christ, we show that his name is the name we value, that the name we love and that the name we cherish is the name above every other name. Is he obeying the third commandment? It is inseparable from the worship of Jesus. You see, but in order for us to do everything under his name, in order for us to obey that command, we must first surrender to his name. Philippians 2 says it this way, that we must bend our knees to the name of Jesus, worshiping him as the Savior and King. It says, Philippians 2, to the glory of God the Father. You see, the way that you worship, the way that we obey, it must always begin by surrendering to the one name that is above every other name. See, and the reality is this morning is that some of you are here and you have not actually surrendered to him. You have not actually surrendered to the name of Jesus. Maybe you have spent your whole life calling yourself a Christian, but you have never surrendered your heart and your life to him. You have never said, King Jesus, I will do your will, not my own. You have used him for blessings. You have pursued him for gain, but you have never said, Jesus, you are king. And Philip Ryken, he writes, he notes about Matthew chapter 7, how it's a gracious warning to us. Matthew 7, Jesus writes, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. You see, Philip Ryken, he writes, there will be professing Christians, even people involved in Christian ministry, who will be condemned to hell. The reason is because they were taking God's name in vain all along, although it was often on their lips, it was never in their hearts. And so my question for you this morning, is that true of you? It's God's name on your lips, but not in your heart. I say that to you not to condemn you, not to shame you, not to cause you to be full of guilt. I say that so that you might no longer be under the weight of your of the weight of your sin against a holy God and so that you might instead be have blinded eyes opened up so that you might be able to receive the gift that Jesus gives to you, the, the amazing offer that Jesus gives to forgive, forgive you and to cleanse you. As John chapter 1, verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right. He gave the right. To become children of God. John 20, 31. All these things are written. So that you might believe. That Jesus is the Messiah. The son of the living God. And that by believing in his name. You might have life. You see that is my heart for you this morning. You see, and that's the thing that we celebrate every week when we take communion. 
We're remembering Jesus, the perfect image of God, whose body and blood were shed and broken for us on our behalf so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and restored as God's image-bearing representatives and adopted into his family, able to bear his name for his glory. See, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus so that we might be filled with a love and a gratitude for him, that we might that we might see the gracious weight, the fact that he has invited us into his family, that he has given us his name, that we might be, uh, that we might be ambassadors for his great glory, that we might see the incredible honor and the privilege and the joy and all that Jesus has done so that that might happen. That we might live as his redeemed people for the praise of his glory in response to all he has done. You see, the bread and the juice, they're in the back. There's a table on the left and on the right. And during our time of worship, you go back and you dip the bread in the juice. And that's how you take communion here at River City. And as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if his name, the name above every other name, if his name is the one in which your hope is firmly found, then go back and take communion. If his name is the one that you have surrendered to, said, Jesus, you are king. Then go back and take communion. Or if this morning for the first time you have surrendered to him, then go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful remembrance of all that he has done for you, making you clean, forgiving you, paying the penalty for all the ways that you have broken God's just commands, all including the third one. But this morning, if you are here, and Jesus' name is not the one in which your hope is built, if his name is not the one in which you have surrendered to you, I need you to know you are welcome here. You are welcome here. This place is a place for you to figure out what that means, to ask your questions, to pursue in honesty what it means to follow him. But I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. Instead, talk with God. Be honest with him. Ask him to speak to you. Ask him to give you clarity. Ask him to show you the ways that you have used his name in vain but also the invitation he has that he extends to you to make much of his name through faith in Jesus. So this morning, as we take communion, as we celebrate all that God has done for us, the new name that he has given us so that we might worship the one true name, ask God, ask him to show you how you misuse his name. Be honest with him. Ask him to give you eyes to see the way you misuse his name with your words or with your life. Ask him to show you the gravity of your sin, but don't stop there. Ask him to show you Jesus. Ask him to show you the magnitude and the majesty of all that Jesus has done for you to set you free. Ask him to overwhelm you with the bigness of the goodness of the gospel, the thing that makes you entirely right with him, the thing that makes you washed and cleansed and justified and sanctified, the thing that makes you pure in him. Ask him to make much of Jesus so that you might be free from guilt and shame and condemnation and fueled, filled, overflowing with a love for the king who has come for you.
who laid aside the honor of his name, who laid aside the privileges that his name was due to come and to rescue you. Let the goodness of the gospel, let it transform your heart. Let it be the one thing that empowers you to obey the third command. To that end, let us pray. King Jesus, <laughs> God, we come before you. God, and if we are honest, we do not even deserve to speak your name. God, with our words and with our lives, we have misrepresented you. We have dishonored you. We have reflected you poorly. We have spoken and lived and revealed that you are something that you are not. And so, King Jesus, we come to confess that before you. But also, King Jesus, we come as we celebrate communion, remembering that if we have put our faith in you, that we are forgiven that we might be forgiven if we confess our sin to you because, Jesus, you took the penalty for us on the cross. And so, God, we come with joy-filled hearts, God, recognizing the gravity of our sin, but also the magnitude of the gospel. And we ask, King Jesus, that you might empower us by the truth of your word and by the transforming power of the gospel to be your people set apart in our words and in our actions for your name and for your glory so that, that you might be heralded in all the world. The Psalm 15, 115 says, God, not to us, but to your name be the glory. God, that's the desire of my heart. God, cause it to be true in me. God, cause that to be the desire of our hearts as a church. Cause that to be true of us. There is no other name by which we can be saved, and there is no other name above yours, King Jesus. In joy we speak it. Amen.